Welcome back to the Act 2 podcast, a podcast for the real life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I'm Josh Hallman. And today we are talking to Ben Schifrin, who is a screenwriter and also a WGA captain. My captain, in fact. And before we kind of force Ben to tell us everything he knows about the WGA, please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any of our upcoming topics. Give us a rating, write a comment, tell us how bad or good we are doing. And if you'd rather DM us, you can you know, email with questions, topic suggestions at act2writers at gmail.com. That's all spelled out. Or on our Instagram at act2writers. You can also bug me at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. And where can you find Josh? Yeah, it's my name, Josh Hallman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, and on Twitter, I'm Joshua Hallman. Don't get it confused. All right, Captain Ben, would you <laughs> like right. to introduce yourself? Tell us who you are, what you've worked on, and maybe tell us the story of how you actually got into the WGA. All right. Uh, so, well, hello. Um, yeah, I hello, am, yeah, hi, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm Ben Schifrin. I, it calling me a writer right now is a little generous because in the pandemic, I'm actually more of a, a babysitter, but, uh, when it is safe for my children to see other children again, I will go back to writing. <laughs> I'm mostly a feature writer. Uh, I tend to work on darker genre things, but ironically the film I have credit working on is Nine Lives, which is uh, the film where Kevin Spacey is a cat. Um, so, <laughs> And another episode I want to talk about how you got there. But anyways. Yes, that's an episode. Uh, so how did I get into the WGA? I got into the WGA by working on WGA jobs. When my career started up, the first thing I got hired on was a non-WGA thing. And like a few months later, I also got hired on a WGA thing. And so it things just kind of happened where I ended up in the union after that. With the captain thing that you were talking about, uh, I think the, the term captain is a, is a kind of a crazy term uh, because it implies that <laughs> there's either a sea vessel or that like there are like howling commandos going into battle. That yeah, I you're lead. guiding the ship. That's what <laughs> I assume. That's, yeah, great. Uh, it's kind of a self-aggrandizing <laughs> title, which I don't love. Once I was in the WGA, there was a point in uh, 2017, where the WGA was negotiating a new contract with the studios. And there were a bunch of member meetings and you could kind of tell from the tone of what the guild was saying that there might be a strike. Uh, so I showed up to one of those meetings and our negotiators gave this big presentation about what they were asking for. And I got up to the mic and said, basically, ah, sounds like a good plan. And then one of the guild staffers, clearly convinced that I was a, you know, a diehard WGA lunatic, uh, called me up on the phone and said, "You should be a contract captain," and explain this new contract we're negotiating. And because I come from a family of lawyers, and I I'm kind of dysfunctionally legalistic, and so I was like explaining contracts, sign me up. Um, and then I started going to these meetings, and the other captains were. Uh, were the very enthusiastic people, you know, rah, rah, go labor. And I am not naturally much of a cheerleader. So it's always been a little bit weird because I do tend to be a little more interested in kind of the nitty gritty of how the union works and less interested in big speeches about solidarity. Those solidarity mm -hmm. is quite important. And one thing I realized 
at captains meetings and at guild, uh, the guild meetings in general is a lot of the people in those rooms are TV writers. And my understanding of what the captain system is, this will contextualize it, is in the TV side, when you get staffed in a room, in theory, generally the most junior person in the room gets this captain job. And that person is supposed to be the guild liaison for the room. If someone has a problem, needs the guild to get involved, they can go to the captain and can plug them into whatever part of the guild can help them. It's a way for the guild to make itself more available and connected to members. But if you think about it, what that means is that the TV writers are really flying first class with the guild and the feature writers are more disconnected. So there's no, there's no like similar job in the feature writing world that there's like a chosen liaison. So the, I am a I am a feature captain. So they have start the guild has started that program, but if you think about the way TV writers when you're talking about a labor union you're talking a lot about organizing. And when you have a bunch if you you know if you think about like a regular workplace there are a bunch of people and they go to a water cooler and over that water cooler they say let's <laughs> rise up and seize the means of production <laughs> and we'll have a labor yeah. union. And the WGA I think it's easier for them to organize TV writers because they do, I'm not right now, but in general, there is a water cooler uh, and there is a room and you can kind of organize those kind of pods of people and have a lot of impact and reach a lot of people at once. With feature writers, you don't have that at all. Um, and so yeah. one of the reasons I've stuck with the captain thing in spite of the fact that I'm not, I'm, I'm not, while I'm very, very supportive of my union, I'm just not the kind of person who's, who says go union all the time. One of the reasons mm -hmm. I've stuck with it is because I wanted to help make sure that feature writers were getting as organized as the TV writers were. There are, there are, there are some disclaimers that I should give as you prepare to ask questions. One is mm -hmm. I am not talking on behalf of the Guild. I haven't like checked in with Guild PR or anything. Um, a lot of the guild rules are really complex and I'm not a master of any of them. So I'm going to get something wrong here. So anyone listening should just, you know, take what I say as a jumping off point, uh, but don't take it as gospel. Um, so basically I'm not talking as a captain or representative of the guild. I'm a member who happens to know just enough to, to get myself into trouble. And I think that's way more than I know. So I'm actually really looking forward to asking you a lot about this because something that I've done in my career is I've gleefully ignored anything related to the WGA mm -hmm. um, and anything that has to do with deals and whatnot, mm -hmm. because to me, it's like it's like math in high school. I just I like I kind of shut down. Um, but I've since learned that that is a huge mistake and I need to be paying attention a lot more. And so I'm now coming at this like a fifth grader trying to like desperately um, learn all these things that I should have learned far early on. Yeah. So just prepping you for that's probably where my questions are. And I would say just as like a gen general writer advice thing, it is good in general to kind of know things about deals. That's like a good lesson in general. I think there are two specific things where reps really uh, this is not a critique of reps. This is just a blind spot for reps. I think that when it comes to taxes, reps have no clue what they're talking about. And there are certain things that you run into at various points in your deals where the reps will just glide by something where you could get a couple extra thousand dollars if you know when to step in and do something. And I think the other thing is the guilt that they don't know. It's not really their job to know how health insurance works, how pension works, how residuals work. Yeah. And so even 
in general, you know, a writer should be aware of the various components of their deal that involve top line compensation and back end and all that kind of stuff. But even more than that, know that your reps are looking at that. They are almost never looking at the WGA stuff or thinking about that. Yeah, I think that's a really important reminder, which we'll kind of get to a little bit mm -hmm. later. But just starting with the basics, how does someone just join the WGA? Someone who is just a working writer who yet hasn't yet gotten into the WGA, how does that happen for them? So the answer to that is a very simple one. You uh, get hired by WGA companies. It's, it's kind of like joining the WGA is this ancillary thing that happens once you've found work. Um, on your first few deals, uh, you should tell your agent or your manager that you want it to be a guild deal and make sure they clarify that in their initial deal points. Because I think a lot of the times initially companies will try to take advantage of new writers and, and, and just kind of slip in that it's not going to be a guild deal. So it can help, you know, business affairs makes you an offer for whatever, $50,000, your agents counter with $100,000 and it's a WGA deal and let the negotiation mm -hmm. continue. Uh, there is this kind of complicated point system in the guild where you need to earn a certain number of points within a certain number of time. There, there's a certain amount of time. There's something called associate membership where you can kind of sort of join the guild before you have all the points. I don't know why anyone does that. If you have a guild deal, you're getting almost all the guild protections, whether or not you're a full member. Uh, I think I'm almost positive you even get healthcare before you're a full member. So again, you, you make sure your reps are negotiating a guild deal for you. And when you have enough points, generally the guild reaches out and lets you know. Well, it's interesting you say that because I think a big topic for a lot of writers who are not in the guild is that, look, my producer is telling me that this can't be WGA. So A, what does that mean? And B, what do I do about that? Right. right. So. Okay, well, first of all, let me talk about kind of why you you do want it to be a guild deal. So, I mean, uh, if you don't have a guild deal, like you won't be getting healthcare. Um, if the producer decides they want to just put their name on the script, no one is going to stop them. And, you know, worse, you know, if the project starts as a non-guild project and then later becomes a guild project, the non-guild writer really gets screwed by the credit process. So you could write a script, mm. Tasha gets hired to rewrite you, she changes a few sentences, and she'll be getting a full screenplay by credit you know, for your work. Screw you, non-WG writer. <laughs> right, whoever you are. Uh, so That sounds just like Tasha. Too. <laughs> so I think that there are a lot of reasons that a company would not want it to be a, a WGA deal. A company might argue uh, guild deals are more expensive and they don't have room in their budget to hire a guild writer. And uh, if you hear that, uh, I would encourage you to call up the guild and ask about the minimums for low budget productions because they are really low. Uh, so even projects under a million dollars, the guild has these sliding scales. And if the company is so impoverished that they can't afford guild low budget, that company is probably not paying you enough to survive. So why take that job? Um, a company might argue they don't want to go through the hassle of dealing with guild paperwork. And for me, that's a flag because the company's eventually going to have to go into production on, I, I feel like this is probably more of a feature issue than a TV issue when you have companies that are trying to dodge out of being in the guild. I feel like most, most TV studios are, are guild signatory. So, so if the company is eventually going to have to go into production on your movie, 
uh, opening a signatory company with the guild. A signatory company is this shell company that they open up to hire you, which has to conform to, to the guild standards. Opening up that signatory company, it involves a certain amount of paperwork, but it is nothing compared to the paperwork that they're gonna have to do for production. So what is this rinky-dink company that can't handle the paperwork? I think one kind of reasonable excuse is if it's an animation project. So the guild, the Writers Guild in general, covers live action in the US across the board. Some animation projects are covered by the WGA and some uh, animation projects are covered by IATSE, which is another union. If there's a TV show, which is under IATSE's jurisdiction and they hire you onto staff, you're gonna have an IATSE deal. It's not gonna be a WGA deal on that. There are certain companies who kind of as a business affairs, hard line in the sand, they're just like anything we do, it's gonna be IATSE and not WGA, which I don't know the terms that IATSE animation has, but I haven't heard a lot of people who are huge fans of um, IATSE's coverage uh, for their writers. Yeah. So I think it's cheaper for the studios to have IATSE cover it. And so it, they'll they'll try to get IATSE to cover it. But I think in the animation case, I know one person who's a friend of mine was trying to set up an animation project and he was like, it's going to be a WGA deal or it's not worth my time. I'll just go do something else. And his agents told him, well, that studio is never going to do a WGA thing. Let's just save this for later. Once we actually kind of set it up at a network, you can bring it up then. I suggested he talk to the Guild, and that was a good move. First of all, because if you wait until you're talking to the network, it would already be too late. Um, and second of all, because it turns out that studio had done <laughs> things with the WGA. Yeah. And of course, the guy's agent didn't know that but the WGA knows which companies have deals with the WGA. Yeah, I actually had that experience very recently where um, I got a, uh, an animation job and was like, well, I want this to be WGA. And they're like, well, no, there's no precedent for that, Tasha. So like, we're going to do IATSE. And that's just what everyone does. And that's also what my agents came mm -hmm. to me with. And then I went to a WGA panel on animation and found out that it's actually not true and that there are plenty of WGA, WGA writers right now who are getting their animation shows under WGA, which is, you know, traditionally since Walt Disney, it's been IATSE. In fact, Walt Disney set up IATSE specifically so he could kind of dodge some WGA. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> uh, payments and whatnot. And yeah, so that, that panel actually led me to then reach out to um, their senior member in organizing in, in their TV and digital space who was there at the WJ panel to just ask her some more information. Was that, and she was so kind. Was it Sheila? Sheila yeah, Wagner. Yeah. Sheila, and she was so great. And she's like, well, let me connect you to two other showrunners in animation and they can tell you how they did it. And suddenly I now have this new kind of network with these other showrunners and they were helping me through the deal-making process to just be like, well, this is what we did. And we know that Netflix actually does you know, they were under Netflix. So we actually know that they actually do WGA and here's a list. And WGA was able to send me a, you know, an Excel spreadsheet with every single animation that was on there. And, at, and you're very right, Ben. Um, I sent it to my lawyer and to my agents and they were all shocked. Like they had no idea. So they're a very good resource. And yes, that is definitely an ongoing argument between IATSE and, and WGA. So wait, what, what happens then? If you send, you're like, hey, you actually are WGA. Do they just backtrack and like, okay, you're right. I think the thing is that if, if you're a WGA member and someone comes to you and they say, hey, we want to do something which is not covered by any union, 
want to write for it, you have to say, no, that's what being in a union is about. You're, you're only going to do union covered projects. The thing that's tricky with animation is there are two unions that have jurisdiction over different projects. So it's not against WGA rules to go work on an IATSE show. It's not like someone from the WGA shows up and puts you in handcuffs if you do that, because under federal law, IATSE gets to claim its territory and the WGA gets to claim its territory. And something which is kind of a theme in a lot of these, um, the, it's very, you can go into the weeds beyond my level of expertise very, very quickly on WGA stuff because the WGA is governed by national labor law. And national labor law is really, as far as I can tell, really, really fucking weird. And so there are all <laughs> kinds of things like, you know, well, how is it that you can work on this IATSE thing? And it's like, there is some labor lawyer who can give you a really, really good answer on that. And I can kind of approximate it, but it has to do with some thing, some arcane thing in labor law um, that- I like that name. I, I, it's, it's a good name. Good name. It's, it's a lot of letters. It's better than W. It's a lot of letters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, going back to this question, though, of of having a production that's that's not WGA, um, you kind of mentioned that it seems to be more expensive for companies to do WGA. Can you explain why that would be more expensive for a company? Just to help writers understand if some if they're told that by someone, what does that actually well, mean? Well, I kind of I I somewhat. Um, if the company is saying that, I think they are a little bit full of shit. It, it, it is more expensive. If it's a low budget project, the scale goes down to a point that it shouldn't be too expensive for them. I mean, it, look, it's more expensive in that if you're doing a WJ project, the WJ has minimum working standards and, you know, a company would rather not deal with those standards. If it is not so they have a minimum that a writer has yes. to be paid. And they're like, well, we don't want to pay that minimum. It's too high for right. our budget. And then they do this pitch where it's like, don't you want this movie to go forward? It can only go forward if we pay you a non-WGA. And I think that part of that is based on a, a real concern of the company. But I do think that sometimes it's based on the company just not quite understanding how low those minimums can go. You know, I, I, those minimums can go really low. When you really get down to it, I think that the difference is on a WGA deal for every dollar that gets paid. This might be slightly different for low budget, but in general, on a WGA deal, for every dollar that they pay, the company pays you, they also have to pay at this point, or it's going to be about 23 cents soon. They have to pay 23 cents into a health and pension fund. And I think that's what they don't, sometimes with the low budget things, that's what they don't want to do. They don't want, it. but the, the problem is that's how you get your health care and your pension. And the amount of money that they're paying in on a low budget relative to the health care that you get out of it is often a pretty good deal for you as a writer. I, and again, I think, I do think that it's a genuine concern for, with Disney, right? I think Disney's issue is they don't want to pay residuals. So residuals is kind of like royalties. And it's something that the WGA has negotiated on their deals, which is that when you write a feature, you're paid the initial money. And that money is basically designed to compensate you for the initial theatrical run of that movie. When they reuse your work by putting it on DVD or a direct download or on Netflix, then the companies have to pay you an amount which has pre been pre-negotiated with the WGA for that reuse. And so I think the concern with a company like Disney is, you know, we're going to be reusing The Lion King 
until the end of time. Why do we want to pay that writer for our reuse if we don't have to? A low-budget movie, I don't think, has a really good argument there, you know, I, 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 because in success, they have the money. It, it, like, if the movie fails, right, and if no one wants to put it on Netflix, it doesn't cost them anything, right? But if it's going on Netflix, the original writer should probably participate in that. So I think that that would be a real hesitation that they could have, but it's also kind of a bullshit hesitation to have. And I do think a lot of the time with these low-budget companies, it's because they don't understand. So what happened on my first deal, okay? It was a non-WGA deal, and my lawyer put in a clause saying that if Atasha Hugh comes in to rewrite me, that suddenly the company would have to make a guild deal with me to prevent me from getting screwed over in the credit process. While I was working on that project, it took me years <laughs> on that project, it is a feature project, uh, I got into the guilt on other projects. So now the company had to make a guild deal with me because I was the Tasha Hugh getting hired to rewrite myself. And I had to you know, stop working on the project for a period of time while they open up the signatory company, have to rewrite my entire contract. And I am sure that they paid a writer, or sorry, uh, not a writer, a lawyer, way more money than they would have paid me on the pension and health contributions for the WGA deal. It was a total mess. So I think the lesson I learned from that is the only thing that is dumber than a non-WGA deal that becomes a WGA deal is a non-WGA deal. I think too, like something that you're saying is rings true for some of my experiences is that when I actually contacted the WGA, something that I had no idea and also no one on my team understood either, is that if something is so low budget, the WGA doesn't actually have minimums for something that's super low budget. So they're able to negotiate a price with that production company that actually fits what can fit within their budget because that company doesn't actually have to meet certain minimums if their movie is so low budget, which again, like the production company had said to me, we can't do it because we have to meet WGA minimums. But the WGA called then was like, actually, that's not true. Let's negotiate. Yeah. So I think that's something that just a lot of people don't know exists, which is why that phone call to the WGA yeah. when you hit a wall like that can be very important. And it's not a resource that I even knew was available to me until this year. Yeah, no, I, and it is always good to kind of call the guild when they're being quoted by these companies. And in fairness to the companies, the WGA rules are extraordinarily complex. They're very, very hard uh, to navigate. So they, so when they say we can't afford it, I, what they may actually be saying is we just don't want to bother doing the work to figure it out. But a lot of the time you really can call up the WGA. The WGA is very interested in making sure that they are covering things. Uh, and that doesn't mean that they're going to you know, throw you under the bus and, and cut some horrible deal with the company or give up some fundamental right that the writer should have. But, uh, but the idea that there's some bureaucracy in the WGA which prevents a legitimate producer from making something, I think is is uh, it is an ignorant argument made by uh, the producers. Now, it could be that after you do that pushback, you don't have a choice. It could be whoever's hired, in my case, you know, whoever's the person who was hiring me first was not going to move on that. But if I think there is a red flag involved with those non-guild deals, sometimes I think you are better off specking work and trying to sell it to a company that'll pay you a living wage or that's a realer company than this weird jinky company that won't make the WGA deal. And I think what happens, I think what happens a lot for writers, 
it, when before you got hired to write, uh, a lot of people have this mindset, um, which is I'm going to get ahead in Hollywood by making some kind of sacrifice. And I get that. You need to be willing to give up a lot to get a job in a competitive landscape. But a non-WGA deal, I really think, is the sacrifice without the payoff. I think Warner Brothers isn't going to hire you because you're willing to work under WGA minimums. They'll hire you because you're worth the money. I think kind of going back to what you were saying about, you know, encouraging people to call the WGA when a problem like this comes up. You know, I, a big question that I have is that I'm not sure, like my lawyer is there for that. Like, I feel like they're my team. That's my lawyer. He knows his shit. He's been in entertainment law for however long. He's got it together. Why do I have to go to the WGA versus my lawyer? That's kind of question A. And question B is, are they supposed to work together now? Are, uh, is my WGA person and my lawyer now going to be calling each other? And like, that's how I'm supposed to do a deal. Like, what's the best way, I think, to get the WGA involved, um, but also make sure they're working with your team? Well, I think you should feel free to call the WGA at any time. I, I don't think you're reaching around your lawyer by calling the WGA. I, I think even just one quick aside, like, that animation example you brought up where you call up the WGA and and of course they can see the entire field of who they have deals with and your lawyer can only see the deals that your lawyer is making. You know, the WGA has a contracts department which gets a lot. Now the agency campaign, right now agencies just send contracts to the WGA and the WGA just takes those contracts and they have a contracts department that looks at them. Sometimes the WGA knows they may not know how to negotiate a deal better than your lawyer or agent, but they may have a lot more information about what's in deals at large than your lawyer and agent. And I don't think you should be afraid to call the WGA. I will say for my lawyers, when my lawyers don't know something about how something in the WGA works, they call the WGA and they ask the WGA. And one thing about the WGA, um, the kind of basic thing that the WGA does is every three years it negotiates the MBA. Uh, So the studios sit down on one side of the table and the WGA sits down on the other side of the table and they hammer out this minimum basic agreement, MBA. So because that has been negotiated over the course of decades and every time they negotiate it, it is this you know, hundreds of millions of dollars are at stake and every single comma in that thing is examined and re-examined, you know, sometimes over the course of those decades, there have been some years where the WGA really stuck it to the company and got more money for writers. And there's some years where the companies really stick it to the WGA and they find some way to pull some money back from writers. And the result is this very, very complex layer cake. And it is actually not really the job of your entertainment lawyer to understand every single nuance of that contract. It is the WGA's job to understand the nuances of that contract. So I don't hold it against any lawyer to not understand something about the MBA. And I think that good lawyers know to call the guild when they have questions. And I think if you have a question, you can call up the guild too. And you can say, please don't tell my lawyer, but I have this question I wanted to ask. Yeah. And when the WGA, and this has happened to me before, when I call them with a question, they say, well, if you want, you can connect me with your lawyer and I can help them. What they're saying is I can just provide them with information, yeah. right? But they can also, can the WGA also negotiate for you alongside your lawyer in a so, deal? 
I don't know what the official WGA policy is on this right now, but at the point where uh, the writers writers fired their agents, and so there were some people who were in a position where their agents had negotiated deals with them, and they just didn't have anyone to negotiate a deal. And those people just had the W the WGA legal department just negotiated some deals for them. I don't know if the WGA is still doing that, but there are cases where the WGA will just negotiate. I've never experienced that directly. In my case, it's always been, you know, we've got this weird deal, which is non-WGA and then becomes a WGA deal. And now we're in the WGA. So what happens to happen now? And my lawyers call up the WGA and the WGA is like, rewrite the entire deal. <laughs> and, and so mm -hmm. I think that uh, most of the time it is probably WGA legal giving your lawyers support rather than WGA legal getting on a conference call with your lawyers and with business affairs at the studio and negotiating. I have to say, I've called the legal department once, and it was during that kind of precious time where we didn't have agents because we had to right. fire them. And something came up in a deal, and I don't even remember what it was, but um, I knew that I couldn't go to my lawyer for it for some reason. And so I, I, I just cold called the WGA and was like, here's my problem. Where do I go? And they shot me over to the legal department. And I think what was so great about talking to the lawyer in that department over my own lawyer, whom I love, was that I could? I felt like I could be vulnerable and insecure as a writer to mm -hmm. him. And he'd be like, oh, I totally get what you're saying. And I understand what you're afraid of. Here's what's been done before. Right. And like, I got your back. There was that sense of like, I'm here to hold you. It's okay, little writer. <laughs> More than what I do for my lawyer, which is like very bottom bottom line and kind of, you know, very deal heavy. So that's like, that is a benefit that I have found from the WGA. Right. Well, I think that's something that's important to understand. And I think that my my initial experiences with the WGA were not as cuddly as your experience, initial experiences with the WGA. My initial experiences with the WGA involved having to get into a tangle with them over healthcare on something, although... It, we can. We should probably get into healthcare at some point later. It's it's a little complicated because yeah. it's two separate entities. The healthcare is not quite the same as the WGA, but I didn't understand that at the time. So I had a tangle with WGA healthcare. One of my first interactions with the WGA was a call from someone at the WGA saying, "Hey, we're thinking that we're going to do a selective strike against the company that is about to greenlight your movie. So you need to be ready to put pencils down on that." And like that's a weird way to meet someone, you know. <laughs> uh, and so. Yeah. I think that wow. what happens, I think, a lot is people get a weird first impression of the WGA because if you go to the WGA website and you look at the WGA rules, sometimes they can, if you really read through like the WGA working rules, it feel, you feel like you're about to go to jail, like, like someone's pointing a gun to you and is about to take you to jail. Um, and uh, it, it took me a while to kind of reach where you are with it, which is realizing that the WGA does have that the, the kind of porcupine outward facing spikes, but is kind of soft and cuddly inside. And I think that a lot of producers and now agencies and studios are kind of scared of the WGA, which is something which is probably a good thing for writers in general. But though WGA is run by writers and is very responsive to writers, and it takes a while to kind of hit that level of trust with the union, but I think that trust ends up being justified. Like their mission, their only mission is to help writers. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the MBA, which is a big thing, I think, uh, certainly in, in recent years that we that has come up as a Guild member. I feel like I am a very passive 
member of the WGA until we ramp up into these mm -hmm. MBA terms. And suddenly we're having meetings, there's emails, people I've never spoken to for the rest of the year are suddenly coming out of the woodwork asking me for my feedback right. or whatever. Can, can you talk about what a writer can do to, to pay attention during the year so that they can be educated about the terms of the MBA when it does come around again? So it's not just every four years, I'm like just shoved with information. Like, how can I be prepared for what the MBA negotiating terms <laughs> for that time in our lives. So, so you're saying kind of, so we last negotiated an MBA last year, 2020, we'll, we'll negotiate another one in 2023. So every three years that negotiation happens. And I, it's very important to kind of understand the rhythms of that for writers because the studios every single three years are a little bit scared that there might be a strike from the WGA, whether or not that fear is justified for that particular year. And the studio buying had patterns tend to change because they start to stockpile sometimes. And so it is important, really important for writers to kind of, aside from kind of the raw, raw go union stuff, like it's good to know what's going on at the WGA because what's going on at the WGA does impact the marketplace into which you're selling. I, I guess a question that I have about your question is, are you wondering like, how do I stay in touch with the WGA just normally, just as kind of the background noise? Or are you saying like, I have an MBA question, how do I get it answered? It's more like when the terms come mm -hmm. up and I'm seeing this list of things that the WGA is enraged about and wants to you know, negotiate, I didn't know these were issues right. or I wasn't aware that a whole section of our guild is struggling because of this right. issue. So how do I remain aware of the things that are about to be negotiated in the next three years? I think that um, the, the basic thing that most writers should do, I think, is get a captain. The guild doesn't kind of force a captain on you, but you can get a captain. I think what you do is you email. I think it's hold on. I think it's captains at wga.org. You just send an email there and say, hey, I want a captain. And you will be assigned to, to, to a captain and that captain will send you periodic updates. Um, you've made me feel like I failed, Tasha, because you, you say you're disconnected. <laughs> um, I mean, I do think that there's, there's a, a, a natural, every time the MBA is coming up, you know, that is kind of go time for WGA communication. So those things do flare up. Um, but I would say in general, the Guild has so many opportunities for you to kind of go in and hear about what's going on. I know um, there was a point where I was working on a, a, a committee, which was the, the uh, screenwriting organizing committee at the WGA. And uh, we had feature writers were invited to a free work summit where we had a bunch of writers just come around and complain about the many problems with free work and try to figure out a solution, various solutions for it. Um, when you see an invitation like that, I think go. And one of the things that a, 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 a captain should hopefully be doing is you get so many emails from the guild saying, go to this, go to this, go to this, go to this. It can start to feel a little bit exhausting at a certain point. Uh, but I think just go to some of them, you know, and if if mm -hmm. if you want to know more about um, it, you know, there is a women's writer committee, which I have never gone to, but I'm guessing that they talk about problems which uniquely face women who are writers. Um, if you want to know more about issues that are facing women who are writers, go to one of those, go to that committee and just sit down and listen. Um, there are, there's, I believe there's an indigenous writers committee, there's a black writers committee. I think there's a, um, a Middle Eastern uh, writers committee now. Um, so, you know, 
I don't think it's necessarily every single WGA member's responsibility to know every single thing that's affecting every single member of the union. It, it is kind of up to the writers who are elected into leadership positions to communicate that to the members. But I think mm -hmm. if there's something that you want to know more about, the Guild gives you so many opportunities to find out more. I do think the most basic best thing you should do is get a captain because the captain will, what, what I try to do when I'm uh, emailing you about stuff is I say, this one's gonna be one of those important meetings that you should go to and try not to highlight things which are more optional. Although like, look, at the risk of saying too many positive things about the WGA, you know, there are problems with the WGA, uh, but some of the kind of bullshit panels are actually good. <laughs> and so it, it, I've, I've gone to a lot of WGA panels and thought, ah, a panel, I guess I'll go because I might have some, like the FBI panel and I might have some procedural yeah. things to deal with in a script and I'll go, but I'm probably not going to get much out of it. And they say things which are fucking fascinating. I remember at the FBI panel, I think it was before um, the Golden State Killer was, I haven't actually, I might be wrong on this because I haven't deeply investigated the Golden State Killer, but I'm pretty sure that the FBI panel, which was well before the Golden State Killer was caught, they were talking about the kind of DNA matching that was used to catch the Golden State Killer well ahead of when that hit mainstream press. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a understanding your TV deal panel thing that I went to once and I can't tell you that I remember anything from it, but there were some things that embedded in my head, which are just like, okay, when I see that kind of thing on a deal of mine in TV, I'm going to know that I need to activate and do something. There was a there was a taxation panel with an accountant once, once which was invaluable. Um, it, so I, I think that uh, the Guild does reward involvement in it. You're right. It I just need to be more involved. No, every panel I've been to, I've I've loved of the WJ. They're I, I feel stupid. <laughs> I feel stupid saying it because it is like there was this there was a sexual harassment thing workshop that I went to and I learned a lot about sexual harassment. Seems like a big fucking problem. Um, <laughs> uh, I I don't I cannot think of like a lame panel I've been to. Though I I am very self conscious while saying that because I know how totally fucking ridiculous it sounds to say the lesson here is you can never be closed off to experience that's right. yes that's, right. that's one of josh's big is mottos. that one is that one of your big mottos is it it is i feel now. like it is you've said that many times oh yeah it's one of my mottos <laughs> um but speaking about that of course panels are a really great perk and benefit of the wga and can you talk about any other resources that might be offered through the WGA to writers that we might not know about. For example, being able to call the legal department to ask about a problem that's been going on. Me being able to call that animation person, Sheila Wagner, to, to talk about you know other animation deals that are going. Can you think of any other resources that writers just may not know about? I think there is there is just, there is there's so much that it's kind of hard to because the things you're talking about are kind of so disparate and all over the place, right? It's hard to kind of, like if uh, sexual harassment is one thing, like seems like they really have figured out a good hotline situation with sexual harassment where you're connected with WGA legal and they've dealt with cases with studios and they kind of leave it to you how much you do or don't want to do. And based on what I'd heard there, that sounded like something where that would be my first stop before even talking to HR. 
I, I think a lot of kind of what I would want to tell someone about the WGA isn't just kind of that you can call up the contracts department and do this, but say that there are certain things within the WGA which you which do require a certain amount of attention and care on your part. I think that a big one is healthcare. I was actually, that was kind of going to be my next topic because here's my literal, this is all that I understand about our healthcare and pension. Mm -hmm. Every year I have to make something like $36,000 a year from screenwriting. Mm -hmm. And then I qualify for health and pension for the WGA for the following year. And then as soon as that number drops below that, I stop getting healthcare through the WGA. But if I'm super successful and rich, I gather these points, right? Like every time I make money, I gather points. And if I'm super successful and rich, I gather so many points that I don't have to work for a year in order to get healthcare because I've gathered enough points that that qualifies me for healthcare. That's literally all I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And that may all be wrong. No, no. <laughs> Everything you just said is correct. My wise words on healthcare for anyone listening is go into the wgaplans.org and learn everything about the eligibility for healthcare. I mean, you're never gonna learn everything about the coverage for healthcare. I think we all know from dealing with insurance companies that that's too complicated, but the eligibility is something that you really want to pay attention to. I'm gonna step back for a moment to talk about, about something that's important to understand about the healthcare. I kind of alluded to this earlier, So there's the MBA negotiated every three years, studios versus the WGA basically across the table. Um, Part of that is that what's been negotiated is that for every dollar that goes to a writer, an additional 23 cents go to um, health fund, pension fund, and now this uh, paid family benefit fund, which is a new thing that got set up. That money is then goes to the separate group which is the WGA health and pension plan. It is run by trustees, half of whom are appointed by the WGA and half of whom are appointed by the studios. And so when you call up the WGA, you have this very user-friendly experience of people who wanna help writers. When you call up the WGA health plan, you are talking to people who work for an insurance company that is half run by us and half run by our employers. And so that's why I think that's something which requires a little bit more watering and care than other things. So some things I just want to highlight about that. So as you were saying, you need to qualify for healthcare. The way you do that is by getting, I think it might be above 36 now. I think it, it, it always seems to kind of be approaching 40,000 bucks in writing earnings within a four quarter period. Whatever it is, it's usually the, it's the minimum for a project. I think it's an hour long script. It, it, it's pegged to something and that something changes. It, it's either an hour long or a half hour. I'm not sure, but it, it changes every every three years as the minimums go up, that, that threshold goes up and it's a little under 40,000 right now. So there are three things you need to look out for to make sure that you get healthcare. One is you need to know how much money did I get? Two, you need to know when did I get it? And three, you need to know, does it count for my healthcare? Um, so I know people who have dealt with weird fly-by-night producers who try to get away with just not paying that money. And eventually that tends to sort itself out, but generally you don't want to be in a situation where you don't know whether or not you have insurance. So generally that's a good problem to stay ahead of. If you have been paid and it is not showing up on the WGA website after a few months, uh, you know, you should 
follow up and start chasing that money down. Because just because you've gotten that dollar doesn't mean that the funds have gotten the 23 cents. Um, the other trick mm -hmm. is you need to make that $40,000 within four quarters. It's kind of complicated to explain, but this is why you just have to go and unfortunately you just have to read all the shit. Um, it can make a big difference if you invoice a company on like March 31st or on April 1st, because March 31st is the first quarter right. and April 1st is the second quarter. So if your commencement check is $40,000 and you really need your health care, you might need to talk to your lawyer to hurry up the paperwork so you can invoice before the quarter runs out. Or it could be that you had a year where you booked a lot of jobs and you aren't sure if you're going to make as much the next year. In that case, you might not want to commence so quickly on a project uh, so you can spread your work out and spread your health care out. Um, there are two, I'm, don't quote me on anything I'm about to say, it's something like this. There are two ways that I know of to kind of extend healthcare. One is the more you work and the more kind of money you get over the more years, you get these points. And if you get up to a certain number of points, if you find yourself without coverage for a year, the WGA, the, the WGA healthcare says, okay, we're going to, we're going to give you healthcare for the number of points you have. So it's, if, once you get to 10 points and how you get to 10 points is super fucking complicated. Once you get to 10 points, it's like that's about a year of WGA coverage. There's another thing, which is if you get up to two, I think it's 250,000, though that might, number might have changed. If you get up to 250,000, um, the WGA is like, good work this year. You've got health care for this year and next year because you've just got so much money. Um, it, don't quote me on it. Look at the fine print and the details. But there's a thing that works kind of like that. No, I'm going to call them and be like, Ben, help me. <laughs> where is my two years of yeah. healthcare? <laughs> Sue me if the advice doesn't work. Uh, so <laughs> so um, there's also money that doesn't count towards the health fund, which can get very confusing. So producing money in television doesn't pay into health and pension. Scripts do. Um, there are also earnings cutoffs. So if you're a big shot feature writer making half a million dollars on a script, not all of that money is going into the health and pension, but those are kind of the um, those are the uh, Act Three problems. The uh, the Act Two problem right. <laughs> for feature writers specifically is option money mostly doesn't count for health, and script sales only pay into the health fund if there is a rewrite baked into a deal. So if a company buys your script and immediately <laughs> hires Tasha Hughes, the big script doctor in this podcast, um, to rewrite you. <laughs> if that happens, you won't get healthcare for that work you did on spec, unless you have that rewrite, unless you were that first writer doing the rewrite and that's baked into your deal. So if you sell your script, you have to kind of decide what's important to you. And this is something that your reps are not going to be thinking about for a moment because they don't know how healthcare works. So that's something you have to be on the lookout for when they're negotiating your deal. That's a huge thing that I did not know. Oh, the, the rewrite needs to be yeah. included? Yeah. And here's the flip side of it, which is something which annoys me. So leaving aside the WGA concerns, I had one of my first deals was an option rewrite deal. They optioned a script and paid me a good amount of money to rewrite it. So I didn't have this problem. It was healthcare money. The option money wasn't, but the you get it. The rewrite money did count and it was enough for me to get healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, that, comp that company didn't end up making the movie because my understanding from my conversation with my agent, because they paid me for a rewrite, they own the rewrite. 
which means I can't then just take that script and sell it somewhere else because the, the rewrite that's owned by company one screws with my chain of title to sell it somewhere else. And so it is actually not a clear black and white thing where you want a rewrite baked. You're probably better off with the rewrite baked in. Like in all likelihood, that's the right move for yeah. you. But it's unfortunately it is like, if you bake in the rewrite, what you get is that rewrite money, which is nice. And you get the healthcare. If you don't bake in the rewrite, that script may be more portable later if it doesn't get made by company number one. And that's the kind of thing that you, if you run into the situation where you're making that choice, you need to talk to your lawyer and your agent and the WGA to weigh what's important to you. However, in that case, you still own the right to your the rights to the original spec that was optioned. So you could take that, go rewrite it yourself, and that's still your baby. What was explained to me by my agent is that company number two is never going to buy that spec that you've rewritten by yourself. Now, it could be other people have had other experience, but that there's a potential legal liability for a company number two, because when you do that rewrite by yourself, are you really excluding all that work that you did in the rewrite for company number one? Or is there some little piece of dialogue or something that's going to sneak its way into rewrite number two? Oh, that's so sneaky. So when you try to sell it to company number two, um, company number two may say, yeah, look, we love this and we want we want it, but we're going to have to go negotiate with company number one for turnaround because we can't just pick up the option. Interesting. Or the other option that my agent brought up to me is, I could uh, take the original script, never be on the project again, and hand it to some other writer because that writer isn't in involved in that chain of title problem. But that's not you know, an ideal situation. Interesting. Don't quote my agent on that. It, it, there is also one thing that is a very obscure WGA thing is um, if, if you've sold an original spec, I think it's five years in, don't quote me on it. It's like about five years. There's this window where you can get it back. Um, you can buy out the original company and it's complicated and there are hoops and I do not fully understand the, pro the process, but that is a right that you have. And it's like either you exercise it at that mark or the company gets your script forever. Uh, so that's something where if you have that script, mm. that's the, the spec that got away because some company paid you a bunch of money for it there's a chance that you can get it back and it's worth looking into the reversion rights for that script. Um, I'm going to take us into a different direction. Hit me. I want to talk about residuals. I think a big source of income for writers who get something produced is obviously residuals. And I think a big topic for writers right now is how are residuals evolving with streaming? And I know we literally got an email today from the WGA that they're talking about this. Um, but can you kind of give us the headlines of sort of where the WGA is going on this topic? Well, I don't know for sure where the WGA will go because the, the, the people at the WGA who are figuring that out are, are, are keeping that a closely guarded secret because that would probably end up being part of a negotiation. I've always been very impressed in 2017. I talked to someone who worked at the WGA and I was like, how do you know how much money Netflix should be paying itself? And what they said is, here's what we do. Netflix buys some project from Fox and some project from Warner Brothers. We look at how much they paid for those projects. And when Netflix buys a project from itself, we see if it's really paying the same amount that it paid for what it paid from Fox and from Warner Brothers. And so up till now, that's kind of been the solution. 
I will say the way residuals work right now is so extraordinarily complex and I could not hope to explain it. All the stuff in the MBA, you want there to be this intuitive explanation for how something works, but it's really like, well, when we were doing broadcast, the broadcast rate was this, and then it would go on to cable. And so we would take the broadcast rerun rate and we multiply it by this to get the cable rate. Then it goes on to streaming. So we take the cable rate and we multiply it by this. Streaming goes into foreign markets. So with the foreign markets, we add this extra multiplier to compensate the right. So it gets so incredibly complicated. The basic principle is if people are reusing your work, you are supposed to be compensated for that reuse. The problem that is being introduced right now is that it used to be that Disney would take Avengers and they would sell to Netflix and Netflix would write a check to Disney. And we could look at that check, see what it is and pay out the writer of Avengers for a very, very small percentage of that, but a small percentage of a very big number. Now, Disney is putting Avengers on Disney Plus. So there is no receipt and it's self-dealing, right? Disney Plus isn't going to pay Disney full retail price for Avengers. So the writer of Avengers is okay, but he's getting screwed. Um, and, you know, if you wrote on some Disney Channel show and it's on Disney Plus right now, you are probably really getting screwed by this process. And with Disney Plus and HBO Max and Paramount Streaming and Apple and Amazon, this is a huge problem right now. And so I think that you've already seen agencies, if you talk to anyone who works at an agency or a law firm about backend and streamers kind of dealing with themselves, they'll say, this is a big problem. Um, you can see when Warner's decided to put everything on Warner Max, everyone freaking out. Um, and this is part of what they're freaking out about. I haven't looked into the details of what happened with, is it Godzilla versus King Kong with Legendary? where legendary, I, I think it was something like Warner Brothers had a really big offer from Netflix and Warner's was like, ah, oh, we don't want to do that. And legendary is like, this is not your, we have money in this. You can't just do this bullshit to us. Um, so everyone's concerned about this. And I think that is something that you are going to see all of the guilds fighting the studios for that money. Um, in the years ahead. What specifically the guilds will do to kind of how they wanna structure getting more money for writers is kind of a tactical question for the guilds. I know that um, it was in the trades and you could hear it in the membership meetings in 2020 that uh, the WGA was asking for a version of, if someone clicks on something, then we get a record of that click and you are going to pay the writer something which translates to a percentage of what that's worth, the number of clicks that the thing got. That didn't end up uh, coming through in negotiation, but that was something something that was asked for and it would not shock me at all mm -hmm. if something like that comes up again. When you were saying, how can I know what the guild's gonna be asking about, asking for in 2023, you know, it's very hard to find out really specifically what the guild is gonna be asking about because it's very, very hard to do a negotiation when you have thousands of members who are all friends with studio executives or my wife works at a production company. Um, and so I don't know for sure what the guild would do in a 2023 negotiation, but I think it's safe to say that residuals would come up. If this is something that really interests you, the WGA is 
extremely receptive to member outreach. And you can go, I don't know exactly what the web address is, but if you just Google like email a WGA board director, there's somewhat somewhere on the WGA, you can just click and email a WGA board director directly and they will give you the best answer that they can. Um, and they are extraordinarily responsive to questions. Um, and if you think like, I really think that writers should be paid per click and that's something that you're passionate about, go and email a, a board of directors uh, member that so that they know that that's something you think is a good idea. Yeah. I think to kind of wrap up with at least my final question is sort of going back to what I was saying at the beginning of this, which is I, I have been a very passive member of the WGA. I haven't paid a lot of attention in the deal making process. And what has been kind of a turning point for me this year was I was talking to a couple showrunners who uh, they've showrun a show and they have a few produced credits that are fairly big titles. And as we were talking about deals, they just started whipping out this knowledge of how the WJ operates and what they know is standard for other WGA writers that they're clearly talking to other members as well about their deals, et cetera. I was like, how do you people know this shit? Like, I, I used to think like, oh, I'll learn it as I go. But I think now I'm starting to realize I probably have to be more active about learning about my guild and the rules and the standards. So you've talked a lot about um, the resources, you know, calling people, emailing them directly, go to these panels, go to these committees. Besides those, do you have kind of any other recommendations for how writers can get more active in in acquiring knowledge? Like I think you mentioned in an email that we were exchanging back and forth about the screen credits manual. Uh, let me just talk about credits for a second because it, it, it's an important thing. The WGA adjudicates credits. So when two writers have a dispute about who deserves credit when two writers have done work, um, rather than have the companies decide who should get credit, which obviously would have some problems, the WGA comes in. So what I would highly recommend to anyone is the moment you're working on something that's about to get made, find a writer who you know, who has worked on something that's gotten made and say, explain how credits work. There's a lot that's written in the stream credits manual that you need to know, and there's a lot of subtext. And you kind of want to talk to as many people as you can who have been through the process to get as wide a view as possible about how that process works. And you want to do it the moment the thing starts getting made. And so one thing with credits is it's not just wait until the movie gets made. If you're in a situation where you're starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable early on that there's someone who's going to glom on in some way that's not right, call up the WGA and say, hey, this is a thing I'm a little bit worried about. I feel like I sidestepped. What was the question? General knowledge? Yeah. How do, how do writers... Part of what... When you're talking to those showrunners, one thing to remember, right, is that those showrunners hire writers, right? And so they probably... I don't know if you're asking this, but one implication of your question is like, someday you want, if someone wants to be a showrunner and they want to hire people who are writers, you should know how the guild stuff works because you're going to be hiring those writers. There is a guild showrunner training program. Unfortunately, it's pegged to the network schedule, uh, which means that a lot of people who are going to become showrunners probably can't do it before they become showrunners. But um, if anyone finds themselves in a position where you're about to be a showrunner on something, Google showrunner training schedule and, or a, a showrunner training program and try to get into that uh, because I think it's like they get some showrunners to come and be like, hey, you don't know a single thing about this, but I'm going to teach you as much as I can in a very limited period of time. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think that there are a lot of kind of good shortcuts for learning the basics of kind of what is expected out of a guild deal for writers. It's just, it's a lot of complex stuff and asking 
the guild as many questions as you can and reading as much as you can that comes out of the guild is the best way to to find out more. So really it is just learning as you go, but making sure you are actually asking questions and, yeah. and forcing yourself to learn. I think the main thing to know is, okay, once I reach this point, I, that's a flag that I should reach out to the guild. So like flags are, you're setting up an animation project, reach out to the guild. Um, you haven't had healthcare yet, research how healthcare works. A movie of yours is getting made, reach out to writers to find out how the, the credits work. If you are about to have a kid, the, the WGA is about to have this program, which as, as far as the WGA can tell is unprecedented for freelancers, which is when you take off time to have a kid, there is money that is being paid into a fund, just like it gets paid into pension and health. My kid is underscoring this and it's perfect. He's talking about uh, Hilda and the Troll right now, which is a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, so when you take time off to have a kid, there's money that's been paid into a fund and the guild will be paying out flat uh, a flat payment to you to just kind of help you along with that and as someone who has had kids i can say that uh it's very very hard to get writing done when you're uh getting about two hours of two hour increments of sleep um and so that is quite helpful that the guild is doing that also by the way just aside from the wj just as like a public service announcement um if you have a loan out and you have a kid California will also give you paid family leave. And so that is something that you should, and actually probably, probably not just if you have a loan. I think if you don't have a loan out too, you could probably just do it through your employer. So make sure that when, when you have a kid, everybody get money. Josh, you haven't asked any questions. Uh, yeah, no, I was just taking this all in. Okay. I actually do have a question for you. Mm -hmm. So how is it possible if we have a friend who had a movie made, like I, I, I now know this, like we, after now talking about this, but um, I just assume like when movies get made and they get put out uh, a theatrical release and put out into the world that that writer is probably in the WGA, but that's not always the case, correct? No, it's not always the case, but it's pretty the case. There's an exception for animation. There's a, an exception, like if there's a movie that was a, a European writer that was financed in Europe, like that's an exception. I'll bet there are some uh, very high powered directors and writers who are annoyed because the WGA didn't let them glom onto a project at some point who are like, screw the WGA, I'm just gonna write it on, you know what I mean? I think that th that happens with some very, I, I'm always reading some article about some A-list writer who's like, I feel that the WGA screwed me over on credit on whatever film and so I won't yeah. be part of the WGA. Whenever I read that, I'm kind of like, you may have a point, it could be the WGA credits pro process got that right, or sorry, got that wrong, or maybe the WGA process got that right and you didn't deserve that credit. So I wow. do think that there might be some low budget movies where it's not a WGA thing, but I think for the most part, I mean, if you're talking about a studio movie that was financed in the US, you're pretty much going to be looking at WGA stuff. It's, it's more the rule than not that it's in the WGA. And when you get into yeah. television, it's really in the WGA. And so I think that's the thing is because so much of the business is going to TV, it seems kind of unavoidable that at some point you're going to be working on a union show, unless it's animation. Yeah, no, I, I brought that up because Tasha and I, we have a friend who uh, this kind of happened to, but it wasn't through a studio where, you know, made a movie, it was released. And 
I was just like blown away. I was like, oh, you're not in the WGA now. And, and it was just so confusing. Um, but now I think I have a better, better understanding of this. It certainly, it, uh, like, I, I, I don't know what that specific situation is. And it could be that that person, there are a lot of reasons why someone wouldn't be in, a yeah. w, in the WGA. Most of the time, if that happens, I think it's more that the producers are forcing the writer's hands than it is that the, I, 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 I don't know the numbers, but it, when yeah. you, I think, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this, Natasha, when you first said, hey, I'm going to ask you a question about would you want this to be a W, you know, why would you want it to be a WGA thing? What about things that get made where someone isn't in the WGA? There's an extent to which I'm reticent to engage too much with the question because I don't think it's a real both sides issues. I do think almost all the time, if someone's coming to you and saying, hey, do this, it's not a WGA thing, it's a flag. And I think one of the things about writing, as opposed to a lot of other careers, is you know you put in the time to, do, to write a spec, that spec can go a lot of places at a lot of different levels. And I think that unless you are extraordinarily passion, passionate about working on something which has to be low budget, it is a good idea career-wise to try to be working on things which are a little higher than micro budget because it's the same amount of time. It takes the same amount of time to write, you know, the Avengers as it does to write paranormal activity. Well, I'll say that like very early in my career, literally when I left my desk job to start writing, the only job that I could get was something that was so low budget, so indie, never hitting a studio ever. But it, they were paying me enough money in a non-WGA deal to make my rent until I could find the next job. And so writers are unfortunately presented with a lot of opportunities that are very independent companies. They're financing this by themselves and it's going to give you the paycheck to at least get through the next six months. And you have to take that job. But I think the the big thing that I take away from your answer to that question was that there are, you may think that you're stuck in that non-WJ deal when you might not actually be. And you can call the WGA to see if that's actually that. And the thing about the WGA and stuff that they've told me when I've come to that situation is fight as hard as you can. We're going to give you the fuel you need to fight. But if it comes to the choice of, look, you're not going to get this job and you're not going to get your, your rent check or you, you know, you walk, then take the rent check, take the job and we'll fight the next fight. And that's from the WGA. And so knowing that that's response you're going to get, please feel okay in talking to the WGA. They're not going to be mad at you if you can't get your job to be a WGA job. I would be a hypocrite if I said never, ever, if you haven't been paid before, take a non-WGA job. I took a non-WGA job. And as much as you can try to reason with the production companies and say, look, it's not really, you're going to end up paying more money later when it becomes WGA. Sometimes they don't listen. And sometimes it is worth taking that job. So I don't want to, I don't want to contradict what you heard from the WGA because I've taken that advice and took the non-WGA job once. I'm just saying like it's it's something that you should be doing if the producers are foisting it on you and if it is worth the if it's worth it to take the job, but it's not a choice that a writer should be making. It really doesn't make sense to choose the non-WGA job. And once you join the WGA, all the people who are like, oh, we can only make a non-WGA deal they find ways to make WGA deals. It's not like you've tied your hands once you've joined the union. I mean, you have, but you've tied your hands to force them to give you a better deal. Well, 
Ben, that's kind of all of my questions. Is there anything that I've missed that you feel like, whoa, every writer needs to know this before I sign off or their careers will plummet? <laughs> uh, I think we're good. You're amazing. You're so articulate at explaining all this stuff. Like I've, I've listened to people try to explain WGA things before and I just gloss over. I'm I feel like, like he's no, talking about me right now. It's when I, when I talk to Tasha, I'm just like, I got to go. I'll see you later. <laughs> no, you are very articulate, which is why you're a captain. I think you, you do a great job. And if you don't have a captain already, um, go to that, email that address that Ben said, which is wgacaptains at wj. I don't know. I, I don't know, Ben. Fill me in. Let me look it up. Captains <laughs> at wga.org captains at wga.org and you can ask for a captain and it's very very helpful it does keep you kind of with your finger on the pulse as it were if you're lazy like me and not a good wga member or, and most most people don't pay that much attention and i think most people don't pay that much attention and what then happens is what they end up doing is they just kind of skim headlines and deadline and what happens i think a lot is all the trades they get advertising money from the studios. It is very unfortunate if you're getting your union information from them, because it does seem like the undertone of most trades articles are the WGA is full of a bunch of crazy fucking lunatics who strike all the time and they don't get anything for it. And that's really not true at all. If you know nothing about the WGA, you're probably better off than knowing what you would get from the trades. But I would say my parting piece of advice is, yeah, get a captain and talk to writers, whether you are a writer or whether you're an executive or anything. Talk to writers about what is going on in the WGA because we have a better sense of how our union works than the people who cover our union. And the best way to know more about it is to get involved with the union. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you sharing your big brain with us. And I've been wanting to do this for a long time because it's so informative for me. It's all the questions I just personally had. <laughs> You've exceeded expectations. It was a pleasure <laughs> talking to you. And thank you guys for doing a podcast for writers. I think that um, you know when I, when I was kind of starting off as a writer, uh, it was the Script Notes podcast. It, it, was kind of, it was kind of giving the right advice for me as I was starting at the time. But it's like, I feel like having something new, which is um, not uh, the writers who are making half a million dollars, unless there's something I don't know, is very helpful. And I think something I would really want if I were starting out right now. I appreciate that, Ben. That's definitely our goal is, is, is to fill that gap where I feel like I needed this information when I was coming up. And um, this, what you just said today, and that's all very helpful and all applies to writers at our level. So thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Yeah, man. Um, I'm going to end with the quote of the day. Artists don't talk about art. Artists talk about work. If I have anything to say to young writers, it's stop thinking of writing as art. Think of it as work. Patty Chayefsky. So please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act2Writers on Instagram if you want more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha3.0. You can follow Josh on Twitter at Joshua Hallman. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Beg, which you can find on Spotify. Mm -hmm.